Hello and welcome, my friends, to another episode of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. And as always, you're joined by your boy, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library. And as usual, we want to give a massive shout out to our incredible sponsors who help make the episodes happen. Seeds here now. You know them, you love them. They got all the hottest breeders, all the latest drops. If you're looking to get some quality genetics, look no further. With a guarantee on satisfaction and not just germination, why would you go anywhere else? If you buy seeds from them, you do a grow and you're not happy with the results at the end, hit them up. They'll square you up. I heard you can get some heavy days packs. A few of them even sold out, so get in there quick. Seeds here now, your number one seed bank. Likewise, check out our good buddies at Copet Biological Systems. If you're looking to produce a next level harvest, you simply have to keep your garden pest and pathogen free. It makes sense to periodically release beneficial predators. If you're worried about spider mites, check out the Spidex Vital. If you've got aphids, check out the Acupar M. These products are second to none. Copet are the world leaders in pest and predation technology. Huge shout out to our friends at Copa Biological Systems. We appreciate you so much. Thanks for helping to keep both ours and everybody's gardens running on all cylinders, pests and pathogen free. Likewise, a massive shout out to our buddies at Pulse Sensors. These guys have the latest sensor technology to ensure your garden's parameters are in check. From VPD to PPFD, All the variables you can't measure with a simple thermometer or your eyes will help you to fine-tune your next crop to be superior. If you're looking for increased yield, resin, cannabinoids, terpenes, trust me guys, you've got to get yourself a pulse sensor. And they've recently released the Pulse Hub. You're going to have to pre-order that one, guys, integrating all of the units together to make sure that whether you've got a single tent, a single room, or a multi-state operation, your crop is going to be the best to date. Get serious, get a pulse. You've heard me talk about it, guys. Shout out to the newest sponsor, Organics Alive. Truly incredible organic powdered fertilizer. If you're looking for an easy solution while growing in soil, they have it. It is not hard to see why they are at the top of their game. I highly recommend it for all the organic growers out there. Give it a try. You will not be disappointed. Your plants will be next level. And a massive shout out to our newest sponsors, Dynavap. They are an incredible vape company based out of USA, producing some of the most coolest engineering and vape technology you've seen for a while. I cannot speak highly enough about Dynavap's products. If you've ever had a vape and wished it was able to replicate the hit of a joint or a bong, check out Dynavap. They're second to none for good reason. We're really stoked to be working with Dynavap. Huge shout out, guys. And last but not least, a massive shout out to the Patreon gang. We love you so much. Truly the lifeblood of the show. If you're looking to get early access to upcoming episodes, if you want to hear exclusive Patreon-only content with guests the like of Mr. Bob, Bodie, Mean Gene, Tricomb Jungle, 707 Seed Bank, it goes on and on. We've also started giving away genetics on the Discord every fortnight. Come check out the Patreon, guys, www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. We really appreciate it. Much love to the Patreon gang. So here we are, guys, back for an epic part two with the NorCal cannabis historian and librarian, Not So Dog. I know everyone absolutely loved the part one. 
We promised a part two. The man delivered. So without further delay. Alrighty, my friends. We're back for another one. In this one, we are grateful to be doing a part two with a notorious man in the scene, the originator of the Mendo Perps. You might have heard of his name attached to the headband and one of the hosts behind the Incredible Breeders Syndicate. A big welcome for our part two with Not So Dog. Thanks so much for joining us again. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you back. And as usual, I'd love to hear what have you been smoking on today? Or if you haven't puffed yet, what do you plan to smoke on today? Uh, I haven't puffed yet, mostly because it finally stopped raining around here. So I've been doing a bunch of yard work. But um, I have a I have a, a embarrassment of riches right now, uh, mostly from friends of stuff. Um, and uh, some of we chatted about last time, but train wreck blue dream lumpa, lumpa headband my headband sour diesel uh chem d um a bunch of uh some uh, death coast diesel i have a bunch of stuff really i i don't actually repeat very often uh these last few weeks because i have gotten enough samples that life is pretty good right now as far as that goes I love that. Sounds like you're spoiled for choice and it's probably not surprising to any of the listeners that that's the way it is. You mentioned a a few really interesting names in there. I would love to hear which of those lot do you think is the standout to you so far? Out of all those, um, I would say that, uh, I mean, this might sound like a little bit of Homerism or whatever, but the the what I call the LA, the headband that I have, like it's probably in my top three or four things all time. So um, especially like when I'm at home and I don't have to go out in public, uh, I, I really like it a whole bunch. Sometimes um, if I'm out in public, I get too baked on it and it makes me feel like I'm a little bit in the twilight zone and like I shouldn't maybe be at a grocery store that lit up or whatever. But um, yeah. I like uh, headbands, chems, you know, I'm almost out of chem D just because I keep smoking it so much. I've not been very good at regulating my amount, you know? So, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's going to be a sad day soon when my little, my jar is gone. Uh, we'll all have to pull one out for the homie at that time. <laughs> I would love to ask you, well, before we get to the chem stuff, you mentioned, you know, the LA and in the past episode, you mentioned that it's a very Afghani sort of plant. If I had to put it to you and get you to tell me your the absolute best Afghan in your opinion, be it a line or a particular cutting, what would you go with? Or even if you would just want to say like a certain region, you know, but what would be your pick best Afghani? Uh, it's, it really hasn't changed in a long time. It's, it's pretty much for me, it's the chem 91. Um, and the reason for that is basically like, it's got like my favorite Afghani high. When I smoke it, I feel like, you know, that feeling you got like, uh, when you're in high school and you get really baked and you know, like you're, you have the munchies and you're going to watch a comedy with your friends and you're like just warm and happy and content, right? Not all weed is happy. Some of it's anxious. Some of it's a little racy. Some of it can have these different elements. Um, 
but the chem 91 to me is just really potent and it's also like very warm and very comforting uh you know and it's interesting too because it's it's ugly and it's not very frosty and it kind of looks like dinosaur weed in the sense it looks like some kind of ancient throwback plant um especially by ig standards today if nobody knew what it was i don't think you would pick it out of a lineup in terms of what you think via pictures would work the best you know yeah it's certainly it's undeniable that uh a the chem d looks a lot better than the chem 91 and also you know that the chem 91 is is really unlikely to win a, a beauty contest no, it's it's ugly. And I mean, it, you can make it look pretty, but it's dark. It's not really that frosty. Um, you know, it's smell comes and goes kind of. Sometimes you hit it out of the park and it tastes and smells delicious. And then the next three times you grow it, it you can you know, it's in there, but it's not very prevalent. Um, but, you know, the most important thing to me, generally speaking, with any weed is effect. And it has effect in spades. It really, it packs a punch and it does it repeatedly. And you don't really get a big tolerance to it to me. Like it works pretty regularly, you know? Certainly, certainly. Look, you've, you've sort of stumbled into this question I, I wanted to ask you, but I've got to unpack it a little bit. But I love the way you described that. It makes you feel like, you know, when you're in high school, getting high for the first time, those sort of nostalgic feelings. What I've noticed is that, Exotic weed, as a broad term, tends to be all the craze among the younger generations, those people who are in high school, whereas Chemdog is often thought as being more popular among like the older heads. I'm wondering, do you think this will ever switch and we'll get to the point where like Chemdog has some more meaningful popularity with the younger generation and sort of in line with what you're referencing, that you smoked it back then and you were like, wow, this is the best thing ever. It's interesting that these days they lean more towards the exotic. Some of that is not their fault um, in the sense that, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to access, right? Um, you know, I'm sure like, for instance, you know, episode one of, of your podcast, your access has probably gone up exponentially with interviewing all these people and making friends and connections and all that type of stuff and getting to try different things. And so... Um, you know, being that weed is still illegal, uh, and then it is, you know, it is even in the States where it's quote unquote legal here, it's not really legal. It's pretty much like highly regulated and highly taxed. So a lot of people that are producing stuff are producing stuff of what they think the market currently wants. And so as a result of that, like a lot of young people, like, maybe 90% of their options that they know what to get are exotic. I'll, I'll, I'll use a different example, right? Imagine if old people were telling you that one of the best bands that they'd ever, they'd ever heard was Led Zeppelin, but you couldn't go out and find a record or, or listen to it yourself. It wasn't available anymore. Like you hear rumors of people having albums of it, but you actually couldn't experience it. Right. And so I think a lot of the popularity is access. And I also think that you could take almost any strain, forget about chem for a second. You could take dozens of different strains that were that we consider to be elite that maybe have sort of fallen off the popularity where the vast majority of smokers have never tried it. 
they've just heard about it right and so in order for for some of those classics to outpace uh the zaza or the exotics or whatever you want to call it today people would have to be able to like you know vote with their wallet and get it you know you'd have to be able to walk into a store or your dealer would have to be like do you want some gelato 45 or do you want some chem d or do you want some dog shit or do you want some jealousy by you know like they'd have to have the option right certainly look i i wholeheartedly agree with you and in part this sounds like a call to arms you know everyone listening to the show you need to grow a bunch of chem disseminated into the community <laughs> um but no like to play devil's advocate here the jungle boys have put out a crop of what they called chem dog 91 and i don't know if it was popular enough that it merited it to come back but what I will say is I also heard a rumor from someone that they were using the uh, the JB cut. Well, I mean, it's also kind of one of those things where it would take some time. And like, you know, I, you know, a lot of times people it's weird because in the past, things that were really good sort of organically got the elite label which is it slowly spread and the more and more smokers that desired it, that's where how it gained popularity to some degree where now modern marketing exists. And so people get told what's good and that affects perception in my opinion too, right? Like if, you know, maybe a better way to judge, you know, if we're going to use chem 91 as an example, take some kind of exotic, and take Chem 91 and put them in a joint and don't tell people which is which so they have no indication, right? Because then you're not bringing your biases into it. And I don't think the Jungle Boys grow very good weed, to be honest. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't. I think they grow, you know, a commercial quantity. And I don't think that, you know, we haven't gotten the pressure yet for quality to really win out in the marketplace it's more like who has licenses and who's able to do it and then the economics sort of dictates that they blow out large amounts of good-looking weed to try to stay ahead of the taxes and all the fees and all the pulls on the on the money so i don't really think we've hit like a legal connoisseur grade yet in my opinion um the weed you could get in clubs in the 215 era was you had a chance of getting nicer weed on average than you can get today. And I don't think it permanently has to stay that way, but it's that way currently. On this topic, and you know, you mentioned earlier having the licenses and uh, the legal capabilities to go ahead. A lot of growers who were producing the killer bud that you used to be able to say get at a dispensary, a lot of them are feeling pushed out of the market. The overwhelming majority of them haven't been able to secure like a, a larger license and facility that would allow them to keep going. What would be your general advice for any of, shall we say, you know, the uh, the old school growers who are feeling like they're being pushed out of the market? Do you think they need to maybe find like a unique um, space like a, a niche or something like that they can fill or like what would be some general advice you might offer uh that's actually a, it's that's kind of a big subject man um so i'll try to break it into chunks and where i live in mendocino county it sort of is the question of the moment because unlike a lot of other places uh this place 
sort of rose out of poverty post logging with the the rise of medical cannabis. Uh, and so it's like a lot more important to my local area than it might be to a lot of other places. Um, you know, because I mean, I think about it all the time and I talk about it with friends and like, even if we make it, what if the community as a whole falls apart around us? And then the place that we love and the place our kids go to school and, you know, and all this different stuff becomes like, you know, just very difficult. And I, uh, I might sound a little political here or a little punk rock or any, something like that when I say this, but like I mentioned before, I don't think weed is legal yet. Um, I think it's highly taxed and highly regulated. Like the idea that name one other legal plant that you have a plant limit and grow in your backyard, right? Like if I'm a tomato, if, if I'm into heirloom tomatoes, I, I can take my, my backyard and I can grow thousands of heirloom tomatoes. I can breed those tomatoes to try to make a better one that I'm into. I can share those seeds with my friends. You know, the only rules or regulations I might hit upon are if I try to commercially sell them, then I might need like a tax ID or some kind of like, but in terms of just like non-commercial aspects, there is no, there nobody, nobody cares. Right. So the way it is now legally where you're like, oh, you can have six plants. You've been doing this podcast long enough that you can't have a mother room with six plant limitation. You can't, you can't breed and make selections for what you want with the six plant limitation. Um, it's not legal. It's we'll, we'll allow you to do it. If you give us a bunch of money and jump through a ton of hoops. So my general gist is like, maybe I'll put it this way, right? Uh, from my whole life, they've been telling me you shouldn't do this. You're a bad person. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. You're a bad person. Stop doing this. Don't do this. We're going to put, get you in trouble if we catch you doing it. And we've been fighting this whole time to make the rest of America be like, oh, that opinion is dumb. These people should be able to do whatever they want because they're not hiding. They're not harming anyone. This is preposterous. Right. And so now they've switched it and they're like, man, this thing you've built is pretty cool. We'll take it from here. Right. But the direction that they're going to take it is not the direction that most people that have been involved in cannabis a long time want it to go. So to me, the fight hasn't stopped. The fight has gone from you can't have it to we want what you have and then you can go away. Right. So for me, it's like you're still fighting. Now, the, the problem becomes is that when we were fighting to just have it before, prohibition made having it lucrative. So it sort of like funded the resistance, if you were. You know what I'm saying? Um, the whole concept, uh, you're familiar, obviously, with uh, one of the first forums, Overgrow. Yeah. Do you know why they named it that? Overgrow the government. Overgrow the government, which is basically laws only work if a majority of people think the law is a good idea and respect it. Right. One of the big reasons why they ended prohibition when alcohol in America was because so few people agreed with it on average that it led to a general breakdown in trust, but 
for cops, for the government, for lawmaking. You know what I mean? And eventually, if enough, if you live in a democracy, you can't have laws that the majority of the people think are total bullshit. Like it's a, it's a, there's a friction there. Right. And so now we've gotten to this idea that it's happened in enough states where I think it's pretty, I don't think we can ever go back to prohibition in ter- with cannabis, like full prohibition, because too many people use it and like it. And too many people have seen it go recreational or medical in their state. And it's not like it's gone Mad Max and society has fallen apart, right? So now it's more about, for people like us, how do you steer it in the direction that you want, right? That's the that's the fight. So the fight hasn't really stopped. It's just changed. Now, the, the part of it that becomes difficult is that before when we were fighting, like I said, prohibition made cannabis very lucrative. So if you were willing to risk your freedom to grow cannabis, you probably could make a good living and then you could sort of fight the system as it were. You know, um, but as they've, you know, as they've legalized things and the prices collapsed, you know, where do you, where do you get the funding to keep pushing for things as it is? I mean, I don't, I don't know if this is necessarily the show to talk about this or whatever, but what the government thinks is happening with weed versus what's actually happening with weed in terms of recreational and legal is so different. It's almost, it's almost silly, you know, like they have no idea what's going on. They don't. And, you know, so the question becomes for people like us, right. Uh, is, you know, we're probably both in the same boat of, we would, we would prefer as many old and important things to be preserved as possible for it's fine to have a bunch of what we would call mids or kind of boofy stuff or whatever, because some people just want to buy a, a big case of cheap beer and they're happy with that. Like there needs to be cheap weed. Hopefully that's still pretty good quality, but cheap weed for people that that's their economics. But what I'm hoping is that eventually we'll be able to get a higher grade of weed will lead to a higher price, just like with watches or cars or Italian leather shoes or organic food or whatever else, there's like grades, right? And I can go to the store and I can buy a $3 bottle of wine or I can buy a $300 bottle of wine, right? And legalization really hasn't allowed that quality to happen yet. It's basically like who can do it and the economics of it are really messed up. So then who can survive? while doing it, you know? And I don't know how politically you want me to get on that one, but it's basically, it's, it's a really tough time right now. I've never actually been more scared of diversity surviving than I have right now. Um, and I do feel for everyone um, because most people, you know, most people aren't, uh, I don't know how to put it the right way. This I don't want this to sound the wrong, the the like elitist or anything like that, but most people aren't like us. And what I mean by that is that most people are going to, even growers and stuff like that, most people, weed is going to fit within a certain framework in their life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there's only going to be a small group of people that weed is like their hobby. It's their passion. 
It's what they spend a ton of time thinking about and pushing forward. Like to use a different analogy or something like there might be some people that fish, right? And then there might be guys that like own all this specialized fly fishing gear and they plan their vacations around where they can fish and they just like kind of, you know, it's important enough to them that it means a lot more than your average fisherman, right? You know, who might occasionally go out there and do something or might be the same with classic cars or stereos or anything else you might want to name. There's people that are not interested, mildly interested, kind of deep into it where you start learning about some things. And then there's a small core of like diehards who really live and breathe it in almost any hobby. Yeah. 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 Like you just sort of talking about like, let's talk about anything where you're like plus two standard deviations above the meme, you know, like you're in like the top 0.3% gets the most extreme end of the spectrum you can get. Yeah. And that, and that's not making me like, that just might be like, I mean, I joke about it like that, like a lot of, a lot of weed people might have a touch of the tism, you know, or something like that. Like we like, you know, like we we're like rain man out there. Like we're in this one little area, like we know a lot. Right. Uh, and then people that aren't like us are like, why do you care so much about this thing? You know, right. And so I get that even up here, even in Mendo, people have a, a misconception about Mendo and Trinity and Humble. I would say most of the growers up here, like it did fit like they did it because it was the biggest economic driver of their area and it supported their other interests in their life. But a lot of people figured out a way to grow a certain style with a certain couple strains, make money off it. And they didn't care to learn more than that. Like that was fine for them. It fit their movie. And so those people are going to have a much harder time because they, they existed basically because there was prohibition and there was inefficiencies and and all that. There's people that have been growing up here for 20 years that haven't really been refining their craft the whole time. It'd be, it'd be like, it'd be like if you were a, I don't know, if you were a, you know, a, a doctor or something like that, and you never bothered to learn anything post-med school. Yeah. Okay. Fast forward 20 years and you might know a chunk, but some of it might be kind of outdated and there might be new techniques and new things going on that really matter that just slipped by you. And most people up here and in weed in general, it's like they liked, you know, it was like one of the things with, it was one of the things that got, it made a decent amount of money. You weren't around a bunch of real criminals. It like gave you sort of like a freedom to be independent. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with weed works for you in that range. Most of the people that you talk to, not all of them, some of them fall into that category. In my opinion, I won't say who, cause it doesn't matter, but a lot of them that you talk to are, are weed nerds, right? Like live and breathe it. Yeah. Like if I, if I want a hundred million, there's a bunch of weed growers that if they want a hundred million dollar lottery, they would probably never grow weed again. And I would hire my friends and start some kind of like nursery art research and development thing and start messing around. Right. Um, and so you know, it, 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 that's the reason why a lot of strains get lost, right? Because it's only a few weird nerds holding on to why are you holding on to something that's old and unpopular, right? 
that's sort of really good advice for like, you know, the advocacy needed and the direction to help steer things moving forward. I guess if we had a more sort of, um, how shall we say, like savory look at the future, accounting for the way things have gone thus far, when we're talking about diversity, do you think it is that unreasonable that in like 20 years time, the big corporations may have consolidated we're smoking glasshouse mountains if you want the mids we're smoking alien labs if you want the zaza and like there's just not really any home growers left do you think that's possible at all or do you think that's like a bit too far-fetched that's possible but that would be that would that would be uh regulators stomping us out in the sense so look at it from a look at it from a a, a related but a different perspective Okay. Um, in America, when, when I was a kid, uh, up until not even really all that long ago, but for a long time, you could go into grocery stores and you like, you know, we were talking about it offline before we started, but you got the vegetables and the fruits that made the most sense for the producers to produce, to put into that grocery store. Right. And they had production models. They had cucumbers and tomatoes and all these different things that fit that production model. But because it was totally legal, there was this whole small little group of weirdos that was trading heirloom varieties of every different kind imaginable. And they did that for decades when the only place you could get that kind of stuff was at farmer's markets, right? And then eventually people were like, man, these tomatoes taste pretty watery and bland. And there's these other tomatoes and they taste delicious. And they started going to like these co-ops and these hippie, you know, places that had some better grades of, of food and stuff. And they started tasting these different veggies and they were like, man, these are incredible. And then some of these big grocery stores start carrying these lines because enough customers demand, I want heirloom tomatoes in this store. Why can't I get summertime seasonal delicious? That's not just this one type. And so I think if they open it up and they actually make it fully legal, whether or not um, whether or not it becomes like commercially viable, there will be a, a small group to a medium sized group that will be breeding and trading and saving things and pushing it forward and doing the stuff that interests them. And they won't give a shit about what's going on in the bigger world. The way that that doesn't work is if they make it illegal for anyone but the large producers, right? So it's like big corporations controlling all of it is fine as long as you allow the little guy to do what he wants. Now, would I prefer big corporations to control everything? No, but I also live in America and I watch how most industries are controlled by relatively few groups. Think about... uh Think about an, another thing, which is not an exact an analogy because it's not plants, but it, it is kind of similar. After prohibition ended uh, for alcohol, um, for about 70 years, Americans had their choice of what kind of crappy Pilsner do you want to drink? Sure. We've got Bud, Bud Light, Coors, Old Style, Pabst, you know, like the heady beer. When I was in my early 20s, going to a bar was Heineken, literally. And then now what's happened is probably 30% of the market is what? It's it's 
craft breweries, bringing all this different diversity. That was always there. It's just big corporations offered you, here's, um, here's a bunch of schwill. Do you know that Budweiser, like for actual Budweiser beer, it makes about half the barrels of Budweiser that it used to from the 90s on. And it's replaced that by buying microbreweries because there's this whole segment of the population that likes to drink beer, but it doesn't want to drink that grade of beer anymore. It wants to drink a different grade. It wants to drink, you know, stouts or IPAs or ambers or box or, you know, some kind of thing like that. And it's, they become economically important enough that you have to cater to them to some degree. So what can happen to weed is still wide open. But um, the way I look at it is kind of punk rock in the sense of like, we, we haven't been given what we want yet. So the fight isn't over. This is sort of like legalization and rec weed is sort of like they're losing. And this is like their fallback position of like, okay, 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 we'll give it to you. But it has all these rules and you have to do it like this. And we need to keep saying, no, no, we want it like this. Like we want it like this, right? Because even like even stores, um, eventually what probably is going to have to happen in order for quality to really reign is you would have to allow, um, you know, direct to consumer sales. Because what happens is, right, is that in the current model, if you walk into a dispensary to buy weed, you can only buy the weed that dis the dispensary has pre-chosen to buy to sell to you. They could be like, I don't want to buy this Neville's Haze. Doesn't look nice and you want more for it. What does that mean? That means the consumer doesn't get a chance to buy it. So by only having these certain regulated stores that can sell it, you give those stores a lot of power over what the consumer gets to, gets to see. And then the growers are going to want to grow what the, what the middleman and what the dispensary is willing to buy. But that, that shouldn't be who's determining what weed is out there. Consumers should. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. It seems like, I mean, to me, it feels like there's a lot of parallels with, yeah, the beer and the wine industries you see where it's like, you know, a lot of people are getting into like these natural styles of wine and these craft beers and, it's really about accessibility. I certainly have wondered with cannabis specifically, I've always felt like the wine, especially in Europe, they, they were really, there was something about the, the Appalachias which allowed there to be like, to put it simply, in wine, you know, some wine goes for like thousands and thousands of dollars a bottle and there's a decent and the people who own those vineyards make good good money off it oh yeah and so i sort of thought how can we do the same thing with cannabis where you can still grow it yourself and maybe if you're in a good area you can fetch a pretty penny for it because i think if i try to and correct me if i'm wrong from extracting all of what you've said it's basically that the, the more variety, the better for everyone in every regard, but also never seed the right to personally grow because we need to have the small home growers. Yeah, I mean, I'll use, I'll, I'll use the analogy again. Imagine if, uh, if your record store refused to carry Led Zeppelin and you didn't have the choice, you couldn't buy it, so you couldn't hear it, right? You know, um, but I do think that you're right in that. I, 
I don't know if I used this analogy in the in our previous chat. So if I did, I'll, I apologize. But I think it does matter in that if you go back to like say like the seventies and in, in the United States, most people had almost no knowledge of wine. The the regions that are famous for wine now, like in California and stuff like that, were just kind of really getting going back then. You would say that like most Americans, their knowledge of wine was like white wine is for the wife and it goes with fish. Red wine is for is is like meats and roasts and steaks. And they kind of knew red and white. And after 40 years of you know education and the populace, now there's people that are like, they know what Napa is, they know what regions are, they know, like, oh, I like Zinfandel, I like Merlot. I like this appellation for my Pinot Gris. I like, you know, because there's all this information and then you get enough nerds that are pushing it forward and you go into like a, a, a heady wine shop and the guy working there has his favorites and he knows tons of information about it. And he's like preaching to like the customers about what his favorites are and why. Weed needs to have that kind of thing because what's happened with weed is that in the beginning, you only had access to like what the dealers you knew had. And then it was like what they had access to and like what they wanted to buy. And now that we've got stores, it's opened up a bit, but it's like the choice that there's the taxes are so high and the pressures are so big. They really haven't opened it up yet to choice. They really haven't graded out like what the differences are in weed. And a lot of times with these Mylar bags and everything like that, like people don't even see the weed until they've purchased it, right? So there's a lot of improvements that need to be made. I would say that like all these laws that have happened right now, a lot of them need to go, but they're like the first baby steps, right? And the other the other interesting component, which I don't know that um, Australia is a pretty big country, so m- maybe you get this there, but in America, we're so big that we grow crops where the climate suits the crop, right? Like we, we, you know, we used to grow oranges in Southern California or oranges in Florida. We grow, you know, maple trees grow in, in New England, right? We grow almonds in California. We grow potatoes in Idaho, right? We figure out where the climate suits the crop. And that's where the majority of the crop gets grown. Because it's cheaper to do it that way because the climate suits the crop. What we have right now is we have this weird thing where every state that goes legal or recreational or medical is its own island because the federal government doesn't allow interstate commerce, right? So California can't send its weed anywhere else. Montana can't send its weed anywhere else. You know, Massachusetts Colorado, Washington. So it's almost like you've got this captive group of people that just have to take what's on offer in your little state. And there's nowhere for the overproduction to go. And so as a result of that, the best states, there's going to come a time when it becomes federally legal, where most of the places that are setting up to grow cannabis won't grow commercial cannabis because the the climate isn't as suitable as other areas of the country. You know, uh, and they'll probably end up growing indoor where the power is cheapest. Once you can ship it anywhere in the 50 in the in in the 50 states or you could ship it international or whatever, they're going to set it up where it makes the most sense. And you mentioned glass house or whatever. 
that's like their whole business. That's their whole business plan. If, if it stays the way it is for the next 10 years, they'll probably fail as they burn through investor money. Their whole point is to have a hundred acres. And eventually they're going to start to ship to other parts of the country that can't grow as good a weed as California can. That's their hope. There's big corporations that are setting up that are hoping that we go federally legal because otherwise they'll fail in their little state that they're in. So, like, I guess what I think about, though, is, like, people like Bud Light and Heineken, maybe some of these more sort of, you know, everyday man beers, they're very much accepted in the community. The, from us heady guys, there is still a lot of sort of, um, you know, grievances with some of these midsy brands. Do you think in time that'll equalize out and it'll just become accepted that this is, in fact, like you know, beer and wine, and these guys are trying to be literally the Bud Light of cannabis, and um, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is that because of the way modern marketing works, every single license holder will tell you they are trying to grow the best cannabis on earth. And they have the terpiest, flaviest, highest THC, best weed you can buy, and that's why you should buy it from us. Right. Who try to find a brand that wants to tell you, oh, we definitely want to be the Bud Light of weed. That's a good point. Try to get them to say it. Right. They won't say it. They might grow Bud Light, but they're going to try to tell you that it's the most exclusive, rarest fire on the planet. This might be wrong, but I think that guy who wrote Three Alight has come out on the record being like, yeah, this is not going to produce the best quality. <laughs> like, this is volume. Yeah, I mean, and the the problem too, this 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 might get into the weeds, right? Um, so I apologize for that. But one of the issues with legal cannabis in America is that because it's illegal at the federal level, banks won't touch you. I'm sure you've heard that like even getting even getting and maintaining bank accounts for like quote unquote legal businesses can be very difficult because these banks are like multinational corporations and they don't want to get in trouble with the federal government. So they don't care that it's legal in California. They care that the feds say it's not right. So what happens is, is that means that unlike almost any other business, you can't go with a business plan to a bank and get a regular loan, but they're very, very concerned with black market money making its way into the legal system. So they want you guaranteed to have banked money to start your legal business. Okay. Well, where do you get legal banked money if the bank won't give it to you? You then have to get it from private individuals that have that money in the bank, which means that the way that we legalized it in this country all of a sudden made private investors some of the biggest movers and shakers in cannabis because they fund all of it. And you can't, you can't like have, I mean, imagine there's, there's scenes in like, you know, in Southern California where like the licenses just for the amount of, of, of licenses they have is like $800,000 a year to maintain. That has to be a check cut to the government, you know? And so all these, all this infrastructure, all these build outs, all this different stuff that's happening right now that you see, whenever you see it, it's almost always private money that's been raised. And then you have a business and the taxes are through the roof. The regulations are crazy and it makes you do all kinds of inefficient stuff to like deal with the regulations. 
right? Banking is a huge issue. And you've got these private investors that have been told that weed is basically like cocaine in your Pablo Escobar and it should be rolling in cash. And we want a big return on our investment. And that's where you see a bunch of people starting to grow boof or mids because maybe they don't want to, but it's the only way they can keep their head above water with the taxes, the regulations, and then the investor group breathing down their neck for return and profit. And so there's a lot of things that are, that, you know, that are stacked against mod, like, you know, recreational cannabis actually getting fire on, on, on the shelf. Um, that three pounds of light you were joking about, you know, when Colorado went, went recreational, it was one, it was one of the first places in the country to go full recreational. I believe it was, you know, uh, Washington state and Colorado, not just medical, but actual like full rec, right? All these indoors there, the most important thing was getting three or four pounds of light. Because your accountant or your CFO or whatever is like, dude, you want to get paid? You want to pay your staff? Well, we got to give this enormous chunk to these investors that help you build out this huge facility that cost a few million bucks. They're breathing down our necks. What they want is they want you to make the most money you possibly can. Now, that's not the same thing as the best weed you can possibly grow. Doesn't mean there, there's not a balance there, but right now it's been weighted towards survival. And I don't know if you've seen it, but like in California, obviously where I live, there's enormous amounts of licenses right now that aren't getting renewed because the people have decided it's not economically viable. Yeah, certainly. Because the taxes are too high and the way they set the rules up are too restrictive. Uh, you know, Proposition 64, most people don't know this. It was written by a bunch of tech bros. Uh, you know who Sean Parker is? Yeah, yeah. The guy who invented Napster. Um, he's one of the guys that that he's one of the guys that funded the Prop 64 movement. Um, and it they didn't they didn't, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the best way to put this is, but it's not like a bunch of lifelong cannabis enthusiasts were brought together and said, hey, why don't you write out a proposition that would be good for the consumer, good for you, good for the state? It was a bunch of dudes that might have been very smart in other fields thinking that they could be incredibly smart in this field. And as a result, you know, they made it you know, imagine a bunch of rich tech bros or whatever made it so that like you needed private capital to exist. You needed them. It's almost like they wrote themselves into the movie. Right. And I'll tell you that I, you know, I don't talk about it all that much, but you know, I've done consulting and I, I definitely have rubbed shoulders with the legal scenes in California and I've tried to help on projects and stuff. It is a very weird cultural difference to get a lifelong weed person in a room with a rich kid whose parents are worth tens of millions of dollars. Talk about a culture clash. Talk about people that don't understand the other person. And so, uh, you know, look at, look at, um, you know, uh, Dennis Perone or whatever, the first medical in, in America happened in California, right? And he wrote this law 
You know, he was this gay activist trying to get medicine to a bunch of his friends who were suffering from HIV and various other things. And they pushed through this law that was very vague. Okay. And very much towards the consumer and very much towards the grower. And it sparked a 25, a, a 20 year, 25, you know, at least 20 year, 20 year boom, like nothing anyone had ever seen. And then these people come inside and they decide to write this wreck thing that was basically benefiting the government, the rich people, um, not benefiting the consumer, not benefiting the grower. And we're four or five years into it and it's collapsing under its own weight because no one bothered to talk to the people that were intimately involved in cannabis for a long time about how the structure of it should work, right? So now it, it probably will take a whole bunch of investor money getting lit on fire and a whole bunch of failure for them to start adjusting the rules. And, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know. The future is very uncertain because um, a lot of these places are only surviving off investor money. And when investors decide to stop investing, you get failures. So I think it's very up in the air. And, and probably most of the people you talk to, I would imagine because you talk to people like me, aren't very happy with it, right? And so it's like, it's cool in the sense that, yes, America should get used to the fact that recreational cannabis should be totally normal. But we really would like to scrap most of the rules around it and come up with a different, more successful model. Some brilliant thoughts there for sure. I guess we will have to wait and watch and see who does fall. You're certainly not wrong about people operating on investor money. With a little change of pace though, I was hoping to ask you last episode, so I'm going to get in now before I forget this time. I uh, like to consider the, the followers of the show, along with myself, maybe a bit of bias there just from me, a pretty passionate bunch of organic fans. And I know you've been around the block long enough to have tried the whole gamut of different grow styles. I'd love to hear how are you growing at the moment in terms of your style and inputs? And what's your thoughts on the whole organic versus synthetic debate? Uh, it's a big enough topic that I actually have, I talked to Matt about doing like a couple of like solo episodes on it because I think it's like one of the most poorly understood, um, parts of cannabis. And it also is a little bit like religion in the sense that people get like their belief systems in place on something. And then they get very, very hard to knock off what they think of. And so I, I think I would say simply uh, there is no one size fits all solution, right? Um, and you know, and what I mean by that is that uh, you know, organic versus salts, I think is is poorly understood, and I don't think one is superior in all instances to the other. Like I'll just say that simply, right? Um, you know, even just even just the idea of organic indoor. Right. Think about that. Okay. Like, you know, you have, let's say you have a backyard garden and you're growing veggies or weed in it or whatnot. And you, you know, you're tilling it up and you're amending it and you're working with like a certain amount of native earth. Right. 
and you're adding some stuff to that maybe, or maybe you're bringing in some soil and you're dumping that on top of the native earth and you're churning it up and you know, you're growing organically outside according to methods that have been around for a long time. And then you're trying to grow organically indoor in a two gallon pot. I'm going to tell you that like, there is no like soil food web that's complete. That's going on in a two gallon pot, right? It's just too small, you know? So a lot of times, you know, and I, I mean, it, I don't want to get too in, in depth here, maybe because I could go off into the weeds on it, but I think that organic weed is the best possible weed. I also think that it's harder to grow organic weed and there's lots of organic weed that is not as nice as salt grown weed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I, I can certainly relate to having now been to a few bigger facilities, both organic and synthetic, that um, a big thing I, you know, I'm, I'm diehard organic, right? But I totally acknowledge that on scale, you start to see some problems that are sort of inherently addressed in salts. So yeah, it, it's, it's certainly no one size fits all. Well, look at it this way. This is something that people don't consider, but I've done a decent amount of consulting in the in the legal scene. And one of the things that is a huge problem with organics that people don't want to deal with, right? Is that, um, you know, cannabis comes with, there, well, there's two parts to it. One is that cannabis uh, comes with testing where if you have too many heavy metals, it fails testing, right? And then cannabis is also a bioaccumulator of heavy metals, which is a fancy way of saying it absorbs more heavy metals into its you know, vascular system than most other plants do. Okay. So uh, what are, you know, you have this situation where, you know, uh, heavy metals, I've done so much testing on inputs. It is really, really hard to find any kind of input that's derived from the ocean that won't fail heavy metals testing. And heavy metals are heavy, right? So they have a tendency to accumulate and persist. So you make a bunch of compost and you compost down your organic matter into this like delicious food source the heavy metals don't go away. They concentrated too, right? So, and most compost is made from commercial agriculture waste. So it could also get sprayed with all kinds of chemicals. Like the whole organic name is really funky. So for instance, I don't know if you're aware of this, but do you know that bone meal and blood meal are organic? right? Yeah. They don't have to come from organic cows at, at all. Yeah. Yeah. Bovine growth hormone. So you could get bone meal from the store that came out of a McDonald's, you know, a uh, massive, you know, a uh, massive factory with 25,000 cows getting fed antibiotics, all kinds of chems, all kinds of different stuff, this and that, whatever else. Once they take those bones and grind them up, it's organic, right? You know, um, 
you know, blood meal is the is this is the juice that comes off the cows that goes into the sluices when they do the slaughterhouse. That doesn't have to that doesn't have to be from an organic cow, you know. So in 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 like in my world, like sometimes salts might actually be cleaner, depending on what organic inputs you might use, right? Um, and then the other part of it that is really is really simple is that I look at it as like the plant the plant absorbs nutrient salt, okay. Um, so when you buy salt, you know, you know, uh, salt nutrition, that nutrient salt is in a form that's ready to readily to be absorbed. When you're growing organically, those salts are trapped in longer organic chains and bacteria and, and fungi and different things need to break that stuff down to release the salt, to make it available for the plant. So when you're growing the plant is either getting all of the nutrition that it needs when it needs it, or it isn't. It can be somewhat simpler to feed it salts because you can quantify how much food you're giving them. Where organics, you're hoping that there's enough stuff in there, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But you still have skirted the question. How do you grow at the moment? Um, I do it all. So to be perfectly honest, I feel like the best indoor indoor is something that I call synganic. Yep. Which is basically, you know, a, a mix of organics and stuff that wouldn't necessarily qualify as organic. Right. Um, but I still think of as really high quality. Yeah. Give us, give us some ideas. What are you doing? I'm always keen to learn. Um, so, you know, I, uh, you know, gosh, this is going to sound, this is going to sound like I'm avoiding the question again, but your, how, how I feed would be very different. If you tell me I'm going to be growing in a one gallon to five gallon pot versus I want to set up a two foot deep by 50 foot long bed, you know, of, of organic soil in my room versus I'm going to grow in a 50 gallon container. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's differences in, um, in approach, right. That, that don't just meet that label. But the other thing that's weird. Okay. And let me just throw this in there before I forget it. Because we smoke cannabis, that means it's a little different than other things. Right. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard talk about how, like, you know, you want your veg, your fruits and vegetables to be as mineral rich as humanly possible. Right. Because you want to be able to eat those vegetables or fruits or whatever. And you want your body to get that healthy form of all the nutrition that's in it. And there's been a big worry that, like, you know, um, the levels of nutrition in our food are dropping which means you're not getting as much nutrient-dense food as you used to. Well, that's eating things, right? When you're growing, um, you know, uh, generally speaking, most smokers don't want a plant that's chock full of nutrition when they're smoking it, right? That's where the whole flush thing comes into play, right? It's like you want to feed your plant 
to where it develops the right way. And then it's like, you almost want to like drain your plant of that nutrition before you harvest it. So it's not chock full of that. And here's another weird thing is that what you're tricking the plant into doing something that it has no interest in doing. The plant does not want to be smoked by you. The plant wants to soak up as much nutrition within itself as it possibly can hold on to that nutrition until it gets fertilized by pollen and then use that nutrition to make viable seed so that its species continues. The plant does not consent to being harvested. <laughs> right. It does. It's not, it's, it's like, it's, you know, what we're doing with it is not how it developed over its entire lifespan at all. Even like what you said there was really interesting. Like that, paradigm of getting it to the end of flower and then getting it to try to drop all of its stored up nutrients like it's it's so the antithesis of what it's trying to do so if i have a i have i have a um we're not friend we're not friends anymore not because we're not friends but just because life pushed us in different directions but some of the nicest weed i ever grew or not, or sampled was my buddy had this style of growing in a one in one gallon pots organically. And he put enough food in there for the first five or six weeks of growing. And then the last, you know, he mostly grew things that were eight to eight to 10 weeks. That last two or three or four weeks, it would just start to slowly, it used up all the food in the soil. Then it started like using up all the food within itself. And I'm sure you've seen like, you know, or a lot of times when you're growing salts and you flush a plant, it just goes yellow. But a lot of times when you're growing organically and you st and the plant starts to run out of nutrition, it's almost like fall colors. It starts to get all these beautiful burgundies and amber, all these different color schematics start coming out. And he would starve that plant, right? And he had beautiful white ash, perfect smoke every time. And he would always say, if I grow in too big a pots or I grow in beds, how do I, how do I flush it when there's so much nutrition in there? Right. And so, you know, CSI and I talk about this all the time. Like if you're growing for seed production, you're going to feed the plant vastly different than if you're growing for smoke. Right. Because if you're growing for seed production, you're essentially wanting to have healthy mothers that have a lot of nutrition so they can make a bunch of babies. Yeah. Right. You, you want robust nitrogen. You want excess nitrogen. You want excess of all these different things so that they can suck up as much food as they want. But often that smoke, like, like on a reversal failure, you know, him and I joke that like that smoke isn't nearly as nice as if you were growing it for smoke because you would feed it differently Yeah. than if you're trying to get a bunch of tiger striped robust seeds. So maybe I'm copping out on it, but it's like, it's such a big subject. It's like really hard to do a one size fits all. Um, and you, you think about those people, right? Like, you know, there's people that brag, oh, I've got living soil and this is my 26 cycle. How do you flush? You're 
your um your weed is going to have more nutrition in it because there's no there's no excellent like the plant doesn't naturally be like oh the human that's growing me is going to want to smoke this thing in in five weeks i should stop uptaking food and start to starve myself so i produce the type of bud that he prefers and most people don't think of that right yeah i mean i I think i found with a lot of my plants they tend to like fade and do that senescence thing regardless of the food levels i've found well i mean Kind of, but I bet that you don't send off your leaves for analysis. Yeah, that's true. You know, you don't know how much is in there. You're just guessing. I mean, the other part that's interesting is that, you know, because, we, you know, if you want to talk about like white ash crew or something like that. Well, it is like such an interesting debate in the community, isn't it? And also like the fact that um, some stuff I've smoked that has black ash is still smoked really nice. You know, it's like great high. Yeah. It it is something that uh, it often has a lot more to do with how it's dried and cured than how it's fed. But people want to people want to say it proves how you fed it. Um, when feeding it that way can influence it one way or the other, but it's probably not the biggest thing. You could feed it organically and starve the crap out of it, and then dry it too quick and not cure it right, and it won't burn the right way. You know, like it's, it's, there's multiple steps in the way. And the other thing I should probably mention is that a lot of my friends, we find that, uh, um, stuff that's grown without CO2 to be superior smoke, you know, because you, you think about, uh, you know, what is a plant doing when it's, uh, when it's absorbing excess CO2, it's sequestering carbon. You know, what does carbon look like when it's burned? Black, generally. So you run a high CO2 room and you get bigger yields and you're happy about your weight. And da, 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 and it looks all nice. It's got more carbon in it than, um, than a plant grown without CO2 or with a naturally occurring like atmosphere CO2. Because the atmosphere is 400 ppm. But if you pump it to 1500 ppm, it's going to absorb a bunch of that carbon into itself. And then how do you deal with that at the end? You've got, you've got a lot, you know, it got bigger flowers, you got bigger weight, you're happy, but there's more carbon in there because you fed it carbon and it sucked it up. And I don't think people think about that either. Right. Um, Where in, in some cases, I almost think, this, this isn't the only reason, so don't hold me to this, but like, in some reason, when people say that they prefer outdoor, I think one of the reasons why some people prefer outdoor is that it's not, you can't pump the room full of four times the ambient CO2 level, and they end up preferring the smoke. It's not the only factor. The sun obviously exists and all that, so I don't want to say it's just one thing, but it's definitely a thing that matters. And so I guess I'll close by saying that like organic versus salt or indoor versus outdoor or whatever, there's a big push in the community to think the way that I do things is better. And it doesn't have trade-offs where most things in the world have trade-offs. 
you gain some things, but you have to deal with these other things. And so the goal to me, when you're growing weed, obviously is to grow the healthiest plant you can starve it a little bit at the end, dry it and cure it the right way so that it comes out the type of smoke that you want. And there's a number of different ways to achieve that. And everyone wants to think, oh, I grow organic, so I'm better than every salt grower. I've grown a lot of organic and it's not always as nice, you know? And then I've grown organic that I don't think salt could ever be as good as. Yeah, certainly. Look, a very balanced comment there. I um, I can certainly agree. No one size fits all, and it's it's interesting to hear you got experience on both sides of the the table. I'm I'm actually considering doing some more salt experiments myself in the future. Did I, did I talk about on the previous one? Did we talk about the experiments I did with salt and organic side by side? I can't remember. Why not? Let's touch on it. Well, let's let's chat about it because you you brought it up. There was a there was a time um, where for about five years or so, I had a section in an indoor, okay, um, that I would grow the exact same strain uh, under the same type of lighting, same conditions, same everything, and one would be the best salt and additives regimen I could come up with. And the other would be the absolute headiest organic I could think of. And I'm talking like I would buy, I owned a cement mixer. I mixed all my own soil and inputs. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I went to all my friends and we like, we would try to come up with the nicest. And, and what I would do is I would grow strains. I was very familiar with three, four different strains and, you know, they would be grown in the same room at the same time. Some of them were organic. Some of them were salt. And then I would take it and I would roll joints and I would sit down with my friends and we'd have a sesh and people would just smoke joints and I would ask their opinion. And often, sometimes people preferred the salt version which would frustrate the piss out of me because I put so much time and energy and effort into the organic one. And there was some strains that came out better organic every time. There was some strains that came out better, um, you know, salt almost every time. And there was some, you know, that it, you know, you change certain things and it kind of depended. And so I did these experiments where, because it's like most people grow one style at a time and then you don't actually get side by sides. You like are basing it off memory or other things. And so I grew the same five or six strains, you know, for a number of years. Cause it was like some of my favorite smoke and I would constantly at parties and stuff, I'd have them labeled a B, you know, whatever. And people wouldn't know. And I would have friends that swore that they could taste when they smoked salt weed that couldn't pick out which one was the chem when I gave it to them, they couldn't in a blind taste test, you know, they could not. Right. Um, and there was, so there was certain things that I found were much harder to feed organically than salt. And as a result of that, if you don't feed the plant, everything that it wants, when it wants it, it's not going to be as good. 
I was going to say, do you think that plays into the idea of like how some people say, well, if the original clone was like pheno hunted in soil, like it's always going to like that, that was the ground in which it proved best. If they did the pheno hunt in rock, well, it might not have been as good. Do you think there's much merit to that or it's like a good plant's a good plant? I think there's some merit to it. And I also think that if you're pheno hunting and you're giving everything one shot, right? The bigger pheno hunt, the harder it is to taste test and actually make a good determination. And then what happens if you are feeding, if you know, what happens if one strain wants more food than another, but you're feeding it all the same. And then, so one of them is hungry and doesn't come out as nice. And one of them is getting plenty of food and comes out nicer because it was fed better. Um, it's one of the things that makes pheno hunting hard is, you know, you know, the smaller pheno hunt, the better the judgment, the bigger pheno hunt, the harder it is to give each plant individually what it might need. Because if you're honestly like, I'll put this in a, in a different context. Um, I have charts, you know, of like the strains that I have. And one of the filters that I apply to them is whether they're a, a light, a medium, or a heavy feeder. Because I've done things like I've done light depths and stuff in the 215 era where I'm feeding everything the same. And then this plant's hungry. So I up the food. And now I'm slightly burning these other plants because they don't need that high level of food. So then I realized it was actually kind of important to group strains that fed the same it was really important to do that because if you put something that doesn't need much food, like say a cookie next to something that wants to eat a lot, like a chem or a sour, one of them is going to by nature be unhappy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you kind of have to like, um, you know, I, I mean, there was, there's, there was times too, like some of the best herb I ever grew was I gave everything like really light salts and then everything was in organic soil. And then the stuff that needed more food, I top dressed. Wow. How'd that go? It went really, like I said, it's some of the, you know, it allowed me to individually, you know, individually deal with different strains. And so the light feeders just got light food. The heavy feeders, maybe I would top dress some different organic stuff on them once every week or 10 days. And then when they got watered, that water would hit that top dress and go down and, and they would get more food. That's cool. I haven't heard of that. I would have thought you would have done it the other way. But yeah, that's really interesting. You know, well, because it's like it's way easier to it's way easier to get every everything a, a light dose and then to up individual beds or pots or something with the, the stuff that needs more than it is to give everything heavy dose because there's already some things that don't want that much food. Mm, yeah. I mean, and then the other part comes, it's like, you know, if you're growing things and you're doing it, you know, on a, on a certain level, it's like, what happens when you've got strains that are eight weeks and you're growing them off the same reservoirs and stuff that on plants that need 11 weeks. No flush for the plants who want eight weeks. <laughs> you need, you know, you, you need some flexibility in there to be able to give the individual strain what it wants. I might want to be backing off food on this strain because it's done at six, 56 days. 
but this other thing is going to take 75 and I can't back off at 50 at when I back off the other one, I need to feed it for a few more weeks before I start to taper. So, you know, actually I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, I was consulting on a, a bigger farm down in, in, uh, in Southern California. And, you know, I was dealing with these big ag guys and they thought what we were doing was nuts because what they would do on a farm, like say a farm of blueberries or something is they would grow one variety on like 40 acres and they would take leaf samples and they would dial in what that one varietal needed exactly in nutrition. But the idea that like the California market required us to grow like 80 different things, they were like, how do you dial that in? How do you figure that out? How can you feed the right way? How can you give the plants what they want? You know? Um, So it becomes tough. Like sometimes I'll tell people if, if they're trying to grow a whole bunch of different style, a whole bunch of different plants, maybe the best way to grow is pots. Because you can individualize the watering, you know, that's not even talking about how fast things drink versus not, right? Because things don't even have the same root systems. So there can be times when like, if I grow, say like sour diesel next to, next to OG Kush, I'll have to water the sour diesel twice as much as I do the Kush or twice as often, right? So if I have them in the same bed, one of them's either getting under or over water. Yeah. Just the way it works. So figuring out what your plant needs for water and food and all that different types of stuff, you'll kind of all have to piece it together. And if you're growing like, like behind you, if you're growing in a little tent or something like that, like it can be pretty easy. If you're growing it over, you know, some licenses or some acreage or something like that, it can be a real logistical challenge to figure out what to group together and why yeah certainly sounds like there's a a good couple of episodes in that topic alone ready for you to crank out yeah i mean i I, like when you told it to me i was like man i'm gonna go i'm gonna ramble just because it's like so big of a subject but um in, in a nutshell it's paying attention to the plants you grow and trying to figure out what they need when and figuring out, are they heavy feeders? Are they light feeders? Do they need something specific? You know, do they need, you know, to do they, you know, all that kind of stuff plays into it. And so the more things you grow, the more complex that becomes. And the bigger size you grow, the more complex that becomes. So you got, you know, you got a tent or you got a little four lighter or something like that. You can probably give a lot of individual attention. Yeah. Hugely, but you start growing at bigger levels and you really, it makes a big difference because it's like, I've definitely grown things where certain strains are hungry and certain strains are burning from too much food. And now how do I, like, how do I give this plant, these plants less and these plants more? Cause that's what they need. Yeah, certainly it does there's a lot of value in what you say, grouping them together. And I'm sure from those big ag guys point of view, what we do is all very quite unscientific, right? Oh, I mean, I actually think I used to get worried about big ag taking us over, right? They have decades of a learning curve. And like I said, big ag is used to being able to force feed the consumer, whatever is the most profitable model for them. 
and that's not weed. So they're having a rough go of it because they're used to like, they're used to the only consideration is like, did I get more tons an acre or less? And that's not weed. Yeah. They don't understand most of the, most of the little things about weed that lead to good quality smoke. They would consider to be an inefficient mess that we need to eliminate. And then you grow boof. That's uh, the light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> for the corporate takeover, at least. I wanted to chat to you about some chemdog stuff. But before we go there, I wanted to do a little something different. I've never sort of asked this style of question before, but I think you're the perfect person to do it with. So we recently did an episode with Skunk VA, and he made an interesting comment later on in the episode where he basically said something to the effect of, I don't really engage in the internet detective work. I don't think there's much value in that. Now, given both you and I have podcasts that very much engage in the internet detective work, I'm going to state that up front that we might have some bias here. But I would love to hear you both steel man and straw man this statement. So what could you say that would sort of say, yeah, there's that's true? And then on the other hand, what could you say that is like, well, I, I like that doesn't encapsulate the whole story? Boy, um, it's a little bit of a loaded question, but... Uh, I would say that, um, the reason why we have everything that we have as humans is curiosity, right? Curiosity is what, is what drives us, you know, uh, inventions, pushing things forward. Um, you know, and so there is a, you know, I talked about earlier on the show, okay. How there's a small conjugate of weed nerds that like you know dives into this stuff super deep and there's a larger group of weed growers that just doesn't care that might be a division right there you know in the sense that we're trying to unearth you know we're interested in history you and i uh we're interested in getting a lot of this like oral history that could be lost you know, down on, on recordings perhaps, or getting different viewpoints before they're, they're lost to time because it's the, it's the world that we're in. And most of what happened happened underground and it isn't written down anywhere and it's all, it could be lost, you know? And so we have this interest in delving into this curiosity and trying to find every little bit we can about the history of something. And for a lot of people, the history is sort of not relevant, you know, like maybe, he's, you know, I'm not going to speak for him or anything like that, but like maybe he's going to be is like, well, it doesn't put any more money in my pocket. How does it affect? Like, how does, how does like the lineage of chem 91 affect me today? It probably doesn't in his mind. And maybe he's not curious about that. Right. Uh, there's nothing wrong with not being curious about it. Um, you know, but um, I think the reason why, you know, and it's also interesting too, because if you think about weed fame, think about how many people you've interviewed that you probably interviewed because they got associated with a famous strain early on. Right. And the reason why that matters is because people are interested in the history. And they're interested in who knew what early. 
oh, if this guy had it early on, he probably knows more about the real deal. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, like I said, there's um, a lot of people up in Mendo. They'll be like, give me something that the buyer wants and I'm going to grow it. And I'm fine with that. Even on a lot of the hills up here, there might only be one or two weed nerds. You know, uh, most people just want to crop it and sell it. Right. And, you know, with Chemdog specifically, I think that, you know, he might be right in the sense that after 30 some years, there probably isn't a lot of new historical information that's going to come up. There's also people that have gotten famous on it. And like, they're not interested in the, they're, they're interested in history in the sense of like, well, if it makes me look good and it makes me money, I'm into it. If it doesn't, then I'm not into it either. Right. And so people get touchy about these debates and sometimes, um, and you know, I deal with this all the time actually is people that were involved early, like not only do they not care, but they don't want the debate to even happen. It's sort of like, I was there, you weren't, this is what happened, accept it, right? And, you know, but then there's questions because the way that weed happened is like most of us were like young partiers and nobody knew that what they were doing was going to be famous. I mean, think about, think about uh, Chemdog for a minute, right? How many 17-year-olds popped seeds in America? And never got famous for it. All of them except Chemdog. You know, I mean, and you know, you, you can talk about the sour diesel thing too, where it's like there's a bunch of young kids growing a little bit of weed in their closet or with their friend or whatever else, making these decisions. And nobody was considering, man, you know, 25 years from now, all these steps, all these choices I'm making are to be important to a large group of people. So if we, Let's just cut to the core of it. Do you think that the story that goes around online, you know, that Greg got 13 seeds, do you think that's accurate or do you think that's accurate to the best of his memory? Um, well, I'll start by saying I wasn't there for any of it. So I'm not about to say that it didn't happen the way that they described it. Um, and it, and what, what seems to be generally agreed is that he bought some weed at Deer Creek at a dead show in 91. And then he hit dude up and he bought a little bit more weed that got sent to him. It's never been completely clarified if all the seeds came out of the first or the second batch, right? Um, I don't know if that's 100% cer certain, but it is generally agreed that he got two different little batches of weed. I tend to think that the seeds were in the first batch, right? And you got to remember that we know who they came, the, the, you know, he bought the weed from Joe Brand and Peabud, okay? But the problem is, is that Joe Brand and Peabud didn't grow it. They were hippies buying and selling weed on dead tour. And a lot, and they didn't find out that anything came of these seeds for probably 15 years after they sold the bag of weed. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because 
Sometimes I think about that now when you say, and I, I agree in a sense, that it's very unlikely we'll find out the lineage of Chemdog now. But there is that little bird in the back of my mind that says, yeah, but Joe B and Peabot didn't know about the Chem D for like 10 years. I mean, he might get they might, he might get mad at me for saying this, but um, I my understanding, at least, is that Joe B and Peabot sold the weed to Chemdog. And then discovered something came of it on IC Mag in the forums, say like 040506-ish era. I believe it was it's exactly what you said. And JJ was online and he was the one who linked them back with Greg. And in fact, you know, um, that's kind of why they call they used to call like the one through the four the reunion, the reunion batch, because it was like the band got back together. So um, you know, Peabud and Peabud and, and Joe B sell this weed in 1991. And then 15, 14, 15 years later, they hear something came of it. Right? Like Peabud didn't smoke Chem 91 until 06. Yeah, there was definitely a big time delay. And and so there was, and that's not dissing them or anything like that. It just means that like you know, they people dead tour brings people together from all over the country. You know, they weren't from that little part of, of, they were significantly older than Greg. They weren't from that little part of, of Massachusetts that Greg was from, you know, they lived in different places. They met up in on summer tour and dude bought a sack. So let me, let me cut to the next question that everyone's going to be wondering then, which is that, a lot of people, and by a lot, I mean a small number, <laughs> have suggested that maybe there was only four seeds in that first batch of weed, the first iteration of the chems we saw, which was, you know, the sister and the 91, really. And then when they met up later, other essential breedings had taken place. Um, what's your thoughts on that, that there may have only been just four seeds or something close to that number? <laughs> well, um, I... There's no doubt that, you know, uh, regardless of how many seeds you think there were, <laughs> they were popped at very different times, right? So, you know, I, I wasn't there, um, but I will say that probably the only thing that will put this debate to rest is if we actually get like genetic testing that works to where like you can prove if these things are full sisters or not. Right. Um, because the thing is, is that, you know, I've talked to, you know, there's, I won't say their names or whatever, but I do think that, that chem dog has gotten a little, a little gun shy about the story because no matter what he says, he gets attacked and people are like, oh, well, you said this thing on IC Mag in 05, and it doesn't totally line up with what you said in 2013. And then this doesn't get said, and that doesn't get said. And what ends up happening is it ends up, you know, um, it just ends up shutting down the debate, right? So all the stories that I've told you basically came from me talking to Staten Island. Um, and some of the loudest people in chem fam online are, you know, aren't necessarily people that were there when all that stuff happened. 
I mean, Skunk VA, he didn't get he didn't get the the chem until Staten Island gave it to him, right? Um, you know, uh Peabud was very important in the gig. He he sold the weed, but then he didn't get it till years late, you know, till decades later. Um, and so, you know, and then you have a situation where you have Greg, where, you know, um, he was a 17 year old kid popping some seeds. And so maybe I'm not answering the question, but I will say very directly that I think that if it's all from the same 13 seeds, the only way I could possibly see that happening is if there was multiple phenos, which was very common back in 1991, the, the ounce he bought wasn't all this the same weed it was mixed weed right and that who's to say that all the pollen was the same pollen that would be the way that greg and his close friends could be absolutely telling the truth i do not believe the chem d the chem 91 and the four are full sisters i don't i think they're too different you know, um, and I've grown them all for a long time. Um, I've had a lot of experience. I've made a lot of seeds with different ones of them. I've seen their progeny. I I personally do not believe, do I have proof that they're not full sisters? No. But um, that doesn't mean I'm calling Greg a liar, right? But I I just look at how different they are and look at how different their progeny is when you breed with them and look at the different aspects. And I just don't see um, them coming from the same exact mom and dad. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with you. And the thing that I do always think to myself, though, is that, you know, often we hear the sort of line of like, certain stories are kept the way they are because names are tied to it, things like that. But then I also think to myself, like, Greg is a glass blower by trade and I really don't feel like his income is necessarily tied to the story. So that sort of helps me to feel like I think what he says probably is the truth. Like, I don't see why he would have a reason to lie per se, because he was honest, right? He killed the male from that first lot. Like, if you're going to be really analytical about it, that sort of makes him seem like, oh, you know, that wasn't a good call. And he was being pretty upfront about that. So, I don't know. Do you think that there's, like, merit to that sort of line of thinking of well, that, like, it doesn't seem like a super obvious reason to lie about any of it? And may, may, and that's also taking into account that maybe, like everyone, his memory is not perfect. Well, your memory definitely isn't perfect. And you got to remember, too, that, like, I mean, how do I say this and be polite? Uh, think about back when you were 17, 18, 19, 20. Imagine you were a hippie who liked to go to dead tour and smoke weed and do drugs. And you're pretty much probably mostly into partying and chasing girls, right? Like what was your focus at 17 to 21? Hedonism. Most of us that developed into weed nerds weren't weed nerds then, you know, we were trying to have a good time. And I think what happened is, is that, the Chem D and the Chem 91 are two of my all-time favorite strains. And I wouldn't have them if it wasn't for Greg. So I am very, very grateful 
to Greg for as a teenager in an illegal state taking risks. Um, and you know, but I also think to myself, cause I started growing in 1994. So a few years after that, the level of education, the level of knowledge that existed back then compared to now was tiny. There was high times. There was a few books. You mostly didn't know anybody. There was no internet. There was no way to just get a bunch of good information. Right. And I know stuff that I'm hesitant to say um, just because it, it's like, you know, there's a political element to some of this stuff, you know, where, what, what if I say that's the truth, but all of a sudden, you know, I got, you know, pea butter or skunk VA or somebody else or Greg mad at me, you know? Um, and, you know, and, but it's not like I'm dissing anyone or lying. It's like, and it might not be the truth. It's probably a truth because let's face it, right? Greg has you know, I won't name them, but Greg has some close friends that were like around him when he was popping those seeds. I wasn't, you know, skunk VA was not, um, we encountered the, the chem in California because Staten Island brought it out. Like, so, um, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's people that like everyone would consider chem fam that barely even know each other. And didn't know each other at all and had never met back then for long periods of time. So it's like there's different people that have different little pieces of things, you know? So I want to be real careful, like from California, because Staten Island told me this stuff. And I didn't encounter the chems until the late 90s, which is a long time ago now. But it's also kind of a long time from when those first things were popped, too, right? Um, you know, M M Matt posted this thing where we're trying to do this like lineage thing. And we talked about like potential, um, lineage of the chem D right. And I was talking, I was, I was talking about it, uh, you know, where I, I have, I've stated before that I think it, it's reasonably likely that it's, it's chem skunk. Okay. And I got, and, and certain people got heated on that. Right. And then JJ hits me up. Right. And he goes, okay, let's say I take everything you're saying is true. Why does it have to be 91 skunk? Why can't it be cis skunk? And I was like, well, crap, JJ, you're right. You know, it could be. How would we know? And so there's a thing when Philos first came out, the way they raised all this money from all of us and collected $300 for test kits was because there was this core group of nerds that like wanted scientific proof that some of these stories and these lineages were true prove or disproven and it ended up that they couldn't do the testing specific enough to give us the answers we were craving right one day we might be able to get chem 4 and chem d and chem 91 and whatnot tested and genetically it might prove some things to us but until then there's just going to be various people you know getting mad at each other on the internet endlessly about this shit. Right. Um, I just, as a breeder and a grower, and I've had a long-term relationship with some of these chems. I honestly think that there's some different lineage in there. 
And I don't, I'm not, and that doesn't mean that it could be as simple as like, let's say that everything that Greg and his friends are saying is the absolute truth. And he has this little wooden box of seeds that he's collecting. Right. And he's got all these different things labeled and he pops, you know, the story is right. That he pops five or six, four, you know, four, five, six seeds, um, A, B, C, D, E, whatever. Right. In 2000. And that's where the D came out of, you know, what if, you know, um, I don't know, you know, what if, what if he just grabbed from the wrong bag? What if it was smudged? What if he honestly believes that it is, but it's like he grabbed something that was like a hybrid of, of chem skunk. And so it's like, he's not lying, you know, at all. He's totally telling the truth as best as he recollects. And it just ends up that a few of those seeds that he popped weren't from the original 13. They were from hybrids that got made. Yeah. You know? And so I don't, I, we were talking earlier on the show about if you grow the chem D and the chem 91 side by side, the chem D is much more attractive. It's much limier green. It's much frostier, you know, um, uh, you know, it just looks like a way different plant. I love it, you know, but if you grew them side by side and said, you know, do you think these are full sisters to people and they knew nothing of the lineage or the history or any of the controversy, they'd probably say no. Does that prove that they aren't full sisters? No. You know, but that's what we're doing is we're taking 30 year old stories from kids, young kids who were partiers. And what did they do? You know? I do know, I will say this, and I don't know if this has been publicly said before, but I'll say it, whatever. I do know that um, in, you know, a few years after, a little while after the exchange happened, I know that Staten Island and ChemDog had a conversation where ChemDog told him that the, um, the skunk had hermed on the chems and he had grown up some of these seeds and they were unbelievable. Like he liked them better than either of the other two. Hmm. That's interesting. 100%. And that was actually Staten's inspiration for starting the Superdog project. Yeah. We didn't know about reversals back then. We didn't know how to like make the two females, you know, make seed. So we had, you know, we had to go, it was like a much more roundabout way of like how it got started or whatever. But, um, and he, he told, he told Staten Island that, you know, they were filling their rooms with these hybrids because they were just so much frostier and danker and, and smelled amazing. And they were running rooms of it. Now, granted, when he told Staten Island this, he was probably 21 or 22 years old and it was the mid nineties. Yeah, look, I've got a ton of questions to ask, but first, before it leaves my mind, I want to give a all honor and credit to Greg, the 17-year-old popping, you know, the quintessential cannabis plant. You know, we're all super grateful and we're all just genuinely curious. That's why we talk about this stuff. I agree with that statement 100%. Uh the without him, I would not have the Chem D or the Chem 91, and they're literally in my all-time favorite list of strains. I grow and smoke them often. 
and my life would be diminished without both of them. So I am incredibly happy that he took the risks he did when he was young and he did all that type of stuff. And I honestly think too, that it's like, I don't think this is a negative thing with him at all. It's, it's like he got really famous for something. And I think if you asked him, he would probably tell you that his passion is more in glass blowing and other different things than it is in actual growing and breeding and weed. It's not like he didn't do important stuff with it, but I don't think it's like he doesn't have that burning drive. Yeah. Because people, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that because like people, people can have a wide range of hobbies. Yeah, truly. And I think to encapsulate, you know, sort of both our point of views here, you know, like all of this comes from a place of love for the plant and genuine curiosity, not because we necessarily doubt you or anything like that. But I wanted to ask you, a few times it's come up, we keep saying Chem 91, the Chem D, the Chem 91, the Chem D. Why do you think the Chem 4 isn't always in the same breath? Whenever we talk about elite plants, 91 and D, same sentence. Everyone accepts it. They're both up there. Like if you're rating plants out of 100, they're both within 95 to 100, somewhere in that area, you know. Why, what is it about the 4, do you think, that doesn't quite leave it to be the third one? Um, I would say that it's crazy, honestly, that the Chem D and the Chem 91 are generally regarded as all time greats by a lot of people. So it's really difficult in in the same family to just keep adding all time greats, you know, um, statistically, even having two of them come like that is probably unusual, right? Um, you know, the four, I think the four has two things going for it that make a lot of people not not maybe get the full thing out of it. One is, is that the best four is usually taken about 12 plus weeks, 84-ish days. It looks done before that, but it's really done around 12 plus weeks. There's a lot of growers that won't take it 12 weeks. So you take it 10 weeks, it's not as good, right? The other thing that happens to the four that makes people have an issue with it is that it cures to a a golden, a little bit of a light brown at times. And in weed, when it comes to brokers or consumers or whatever else, anything that goes a little golden or a little brown or a little yellow, that means you messed up. They just don't accept that some weed does that, that it oxidizes a little bit that way. Those colors are associated with old, bad, burnt, messed up, not good. Just as a general rule. So, the fact that Chem D tends to go a little golden brown after it cures a bit, visually, it's a big downer for people. So you get something that's a little off, you get something that's harvested 10 or 14 days before it needs to be, it's not going to be as good. That being said, you know, um, the I think the four, I think the four has some NL5 haze in it or something like that. I don't know because it, it's got these big long colas. It stretches like a champ. It takes forever 
um, you know, you grow the D it's like a short squat Afghan. It takes a while to get going. It's pretty much done at nine weeks. There's a variety of people that pull it, but it mostly gets pulled in the early to mid sixties. I would say some people pull it in the high fifties, maybe. And the four really takes, I mean, it takes a full 12 weeks. There's not very many strains that people are willing to take 12 weeks. This isn't a chem thing, but the amount of people that would pull sour around here 10 days, 14 days early because it had the nose and it was good enough to go. A lot of growers don't like going over eight, nine weeks, 10 weeks on the outside. You start getting into 11, 12, 13 weeks. They're like, what are you doing? I do not want to grow weed that long. And so I think that's, I think most people don't take the four long enough. Um, and I also think that it's got a little bit more of that, like zippy sativa high and like you smoke enough of it. It kind of gives you like a little raciness in your chest and it's a very different buzz than how the chem D and how the dog hits you. Maybe I should say this just before I forget, but, uh, did anyone ever tell you the reason why we all call it the dog? Cause it makes you roll on the ground like a dog or something. No, no, because when <clears throat> Staten Island brought it West, he was a hundred percent fully organic grower and he didn't want to call any weed that he grew chem. So he shortened it to the dog. Yeah. Okay. Chem dog, <laughs> you know, he's your, your organic chem dog, you know, it's chem. And so as a nickname, uh, the four or five of us or whatever who had it out here, I will tell you that like me, I see collective Staten Island, skunk VA. I never heard any, like in the, in, in that era, the late nineties, early two thousands before the forums or whatever, we all just called it dog or the dog. Yeah. That was what we called. It, it was the dog, you know, um, we never called it chem dog. I mean, we, I knew obviously that that's what like its full name, but that was our nickname and, you know, Chem 91, the skunk VA cut, all those different things. Those are all forum names. Those are all names that came up as a way to identify it when people were typing out sentences online. Yeah, sure. You know, and I've started using them, um, just because it's, it it's, you know, communication wise, it's, but it took me a long time because the first, I mean, we just called it straight dog for forever. And there you have it, gang. What do you think? As always, massive shout out to Not So Dog for coming on for this epic third installment. Thank you for making it to the end. What do you guys think? I loved it as always my man lots of knowledge to share hope you'll come back for the next part of this chapter if you like this episode please go check out our Patreon the only way to get early access to content www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast our Patreon supporters have had access to this episode for a while now be sure to check it out if you want to hear more content before it goes live for the general public Likewise, we would love for you to go and support our sponsors. By supporting them, you help them to support us. 
seeds here now. Best seed bank in the industry. Whatever drop you're looking for, they're gonna have the latest and greatest from all the best breeders, people who I vouch for as well. A guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Please go check them out. Seeds here now, your number one seed bank. Just like, I want you to go check out Copa Biological Systems. These guys have the best predators in the game. I cannot stress this enough. If you want to keep aphids and spider mites out of your garden, please get the Apiparem and Spidex Vitals. I hammer on about these products because they're so bloody good. Thank you so much, Copet, for supporting the show. We are such big fans of your products and truly grateful to have you supporting us. Likewise, a huge thank you to the ongoing support we get from Pulse Sensors. These guys have the best units in the game. I run them in my garden. There's absolutely no doubt it's helped improve the quality of my crops. And with the release of the recent Pulse Hub, there's no reason not to get on board, get excited and get yourself a Pulse. As I say, from a single tent to a single room to a multi-state operation, get serious, get a Pulse. You've heard me talk about it, guys. Shout out to the newest sponsor, Organics Alive. Truly incredible organic powdered fertilizer. If you're looking for an easy solution while growing in soil, they have it. It is not hard to see why they are at the top of their game. I highly recommend it for all the organic growers out there. Give it a try. You will not be disappointed. Your plants will be next level. Massive shout out again. And a massive shout out to our newest sponsors, Dynavap. They are an incredible vape company based out of USA, producing some of the most coolest engineering and vape technology you've seen for a while. I cannot speak highly enough about Dynavap's products. If you've ever had a vape and wished it was able to replicate the hit of a joint or a bong, check out Dynavap. They're second to none for good reason. We're really stoked to be working with Dynavap. Huge shout out, guys. And that just about does it for this one, my friends. Thank you for making it to the end as always. Much love from your boy, Heavy Days, signing off from the Upside Down Library. I'll see you for the next one. See you.